I'm Jill Shaw, and you're listening to Last Night at School Committee. Ross Wilson and I are here to summarize for you what happened last night during Boston Public Schools School Committee meeting. The meeting was a long one. It was about six and a half hours. There were 62 residents and participants providing public comment. This included students, parents, and community organizations, and they all had one unified message. We do not trust the district. There was a fierce vibration as students advocated for their student representative and pointed out inconsistencies in the athletic director's report. Families continue to express both sides of the back to school in-person story, representing fears of returning because of their experiences with the pandemic and fears of staying home because of their fears of the social, emotional, and academic impact that this is having on our children. Community members are frustrated, everyone is exhausted, and Ross, school committee seemed a bit lost with an agenda that included a literacy program pitch that we've all seen before and a hollow reiteration of why the school committee needs new goals and guardrails in addition to the goals that they've already set for the superintendent and the district. Good morning, Jill. That is a good summary of the school committee meeting last night. You know, Jill, I was expecting a meeting that would be focused on Monday. Monday, March 1st, when thousands of kindergarten to grade three students whose families have chosen hybrid in-person learning are returning to school. Monday, they're returning to school for up to two days a week of in-person learning. Instead, the meeting had an overwhelming theme of concern over the lack of community trust. Let's begin with the superintendent addressing the commissioner of Massachusetts Department of Elementary and Secondary Education on the, the administration of MCAS this year. Also, the commissioner has continued to communicate that MCAS will be required this year. The commissioner asked to open, a, um, to open up a window for review and comment, MBPS provided comment to the commissioner. Specifically, we commented that the MCAS should be canceled this year. And then student representative Kamani James asked this question and the committee chair answers. Um, I agree with you. I don't believe that MCAS should be administered. Um, I, I, don't, I think we can all just you know, agree on the stipulations as to why. My question is, why exactly can't this committee pass a resolution? Um, I'm not sure, um, you know, why that can't be done. Um, what would be the result of that, et cetera? So I'd like someone to explain that to me. Um, thank you, Mr. James. I think um, the superintendent, you know, has already made comments. So I think at this point, we are going to wait and see. Um, I don't think that we need to pass a resolution if we have already made the comments, but thank you for your suggestion. So what would a what would a resolution do if it was passed? What would be the result of a resolution? From this committee? Mm -hmm. um, I, I don't know that. I don't know the answer to that. Now, Jill, while the chair doesn't uh, wasn't able to answer the question, we, we should we should be clear here. The state, the federal government and the state have provided guidance and requirements. It is the school committee's role to ensure the superintendent meets or exceeds the state's guidance requirements. If the state says that we must test, the school committee cannot go against the decision with their own resolution. If they do, they risk losing state funding and other state, I guess, state retributions. Um, so then we got to what we thought would be the meat of the meeting back to school. Students are being bought back in a hybrid scenario for the first time since last March, one year ago, Jill. So was, we've, we've had our students out of school for an entire year in remote learning. 
I imagined that we would be hearing about the student and teacher experience on Monday as doors reopen and for more and more students. Instead, we got an update on operations. Right. So this included an update on BPS's participation in the comprehensive COVID-19 surveillance testing program that's being offered and right now paid for by the state. This, as you know, has been one of our call to actions for the past two episodes. Call school committee and central office and let and, and encourage them to use this program. And we're pleased to share that Ms. Lopes, the director of health services for Boston Public Schools reported last night that BPS will indeed roll out the program as part of an overall health and safety program to protect against the spread of the disease in schools. We really would have liked to have heard more about exactly how they're going to execute this program in practice, especially since they're bringing back more students and staff on Monday, but it's very good to hear that they will be doing surveillance testing. And if you're interested in learning more about the program, including videos where you can see it in action in other schools across the state, you can visit our website, which is www.covidedtesting.com. So Jill, it was great. Next we heard from Chief Operating Officer, Sam DePina, that there are only 400 windows left to fix in this first round of repairs. Um, so it wouldn't be a school committee meeting um, over the past year if we, we didn't hear about windows. And we are down well below 1,000 to about 400 windows left to be fixed. Um, and they've, I mean, it sounds like BPS has fixed um, about 10,000 plus windows so far. So um, really good to hear. Um, and then in a deja vu moment, we heard again about a grand plan for the upcoming summer. We're beginning to plan for another summer uh, full of learning and play in collaboration with our partners. Um, there are a number of programs that are being planned similar to last year, but expanded. We're expecting to have um, at least 16,000 seats available and filled uh, for young people this summer. And our goal really is to ensure that every young person has a plan for a meaningful summer full of growth. In addition to the programs you see listed here that um, span K-0 through 12th grade and provide credit recovery for our secondary students, as well as programs really particularly specifically designed for our English learners, our English learners with disabilities, our students with disabilities, and really all of our students. There are also, you'll also hear about the exam school initiative, which we'll be running this summer, as well as partnerships with the city of Boston to connect young people to job opportunities. So 16,000 seats, that is what we just heard Andrea Zayas say. So the district is committing to ensure 16,000 spots for district kids for the summer. In my opinion, Ross, we should hear an update about this number at every school committee meeting until summer begins. So where are these seats and how many are left to be filled? Right, so because last year, we, there, there were not enough seats last year to be for, for our students. In, in fact, we had so many disengaged students across our city. We, we also had experienced record rates of violence across our city. And here we go again. We're entering into the next summer and planning for the next summer. Um, and and we don't have enough details. By the way, Jill, is this virtual programming or is this in-person learning? We, we don't even know if students are going, to be, are going to be going somewhere 
for summer learning and summer opportunities, or if we're running again a virtual experience, which we did last year. Um, essentially, last year, all the seats were virtual. Our parents, our parents need to know now, what should they expect for their students this summer? And who's going to communicate that to them? Right? Parents need to know, can I go back to work this summer? Will, how many days a week? What, what's going to be happening? So parents need and deserve more information. This report barely scratched the surface. It talked about 16,000 opportunities while we have about 50,000 students. When will parents know what their students will be doing this summer? We heard from Andre Isaias that every student would have a plan. We need to ensure that that is actually true. Um, and so we expect and hope that the school committee will ask more about this in upcoming meetings. And Jill, the title of this presentation was Update on Remote and Hybrid Learning and Reopening. Ms. Robinson seemed to be worried that we actually weren't hearing much about that. It's clear that logistically, there is an enormous amount of activity um, going on in the district um, just to get people where they need to be, et cetera. Um, and maybe it's too soon to, to give any updates, but I'm really interested in the quality of the experience once kids are in school. What does the day really look like? How much time are kids really still spending using their devices? So this is a great question that Ms. Robinson asks. How will students experience school when they go back in person? And we didn't hear about that in this presentation about back to school. It would have been great to have others backing up Ms. Robinson's question to stress how important the answer to that question really is. The committee and the audience was sort of left without enough information about what it will be like for students to go back to school in person. And for that matter, what it's going to be like for teachers who are being asked now to teach every day in this hybrid scenario. It makes us wonder really how much direction are principals getting on back to school in person? I'm surprised that there are no questions from school committees on this about you know, how each school is going to execute back to school as we start to bring kids back into the classroom. Right, Jill, I mean, across the state, this is what people are talking about. If you go to any other district in our state, uh, school committee agendas are about how to return kids to in-person learning and what that experience looks like. In fact, this is the focus of school committees across the country. There's nothing more important to families right now than Monday, right? Then what are what are the details? How will it be executed? How are lunches going to be happening, right? What's going to be happening with arrival? How are we ensure kids are safe, that teachers are safe? Um, it's incredible that the committee was not peppering the superintendent and her team with questions about getting clarity on her plan. This committee represents families and community members of Boston. That is what everybody is talking about in Boston. I would hope the committee would then reflect what people are, are interested in and ask the right questions. Right. So, Jill, we then moved on to general public comment with 62 residents expressing in different ways how much they distrust the district. First, we heard from students about wanting to be better represented, represented by the committee and how there is a disconnect between what the committee is saying and what they're experiencing. Personally, I felt disrespected, insulted, and attacked that someone representing me feels comfortable enough to go to, on public record with the Boston Herald and state that students do not deserve to have a voice and more specifically don't deserve a vote on the school committee. The idea of students receiving quote unquote leadership opportunities without a voice to back them up is like telling a student 
They made the basketball team, but all they really do is fill up water bottles and clean the floors. That's how it feels. And I wanted to make sure that it was clear that it was hurtful to hear this quote from a student as a student. Well, not from a student, as a student and from someone who was supposed to be representing me. Now, on top of this, how it personally affects me, it also shows a lack of education and awareness to the grassroots student-led movement that is taking place all across the city of Boston. That being the push for the student on the Boston School Committee to receive a student, to receive a vote and a stipend just like the rest of the adults on this board. You would think that the recent appointee to school committee would do the work to know what, what are the major things going on in BPS, but I guess that's beyond me. Anyways, I am back again to ask for 100% support from every school committee rep as we work to pass a home rule petition to give the student a vote and a stipend. At, at this point, I don't even feel like needing to give an explanation, but if you want to, feel free to email me. I'm not gonna put my email because I already got in trouble for that. And lastly, I do wanna thank the members who have already came out in support because we really do appreciate that and it does mean a lot. And I urge the rest of the members to follow in your calling footsteps and support this. Thank you for your time. Oh, and I also wanted to mention that um, the speech about athletics earlier, um, I'm on the swim team. We have yet to get open a pool to be able to swim at and we're trying to start our season. So that kind of sucks. So yeah, maybe if y'all could put in the word, get us a pool so we can swim. Thanks, have a good day. Then a resident and parent expresses a distressing view of what he is experiencing with the district and specifically his daughter's school, the Horace Mann School for the Deaf and Hard of Hearing. Our family is thriving today because of the amazing educators at the Horace Mann School for the Deaf and Hard of Hearing. Make no mistake, my passion, which can be seen as emotional, is because I care so much for Isabella and all her educators. This is why I come tonight to speak about the irreparable harm BPS is doing to the Horace Mann School for the Deaf and Hard of Hearing. Perception is reality, and it appears BPS is systematically closing the school. The Office of Special Education is diverting students from enrolling to the school by using the mainstream team for the deaf and hard of hearing as defined on the BPS website. The school principal has abruptly resigned. The superintendent promised a new building plan, but the chief financial officer has not set aside the capital budget and the chief financial officer also cut Horace Mann's operating budget next year. How can a reasonable person not think BPS is systematically closing the Horace Mann School? There is one consistent thread here, follow the money. The chief financial officer is the only consistent authority over the Horace Mann and he holds the power of the purse. And I should note here, Jill, there were no follow-up questions from school committee members later in the meeting about either of the topics raised by the students or by this, this parent about his experience with the Horace Mann. All right, so then Ruby Reyes, the director of the Boston Education Justice Alliance accuses the district and school committee of lying to and gaslighting families. The current budget process as with Build BPS and student assignment continues to lack transparency. Central office is not accountable and parents are being gaslighted. Gaslighting and institutional racism are synonymous. It is when there is an imbalance of power and families are manipulated into questioning their sanity. It involves things like countering, withholding, trivializing, diverting, and flat out denial. For example, the families from the Horace Mann School were promised the Edwards a swing space, 
then told that was not true. This is countering, questioning the memory of the Horace Mann community. Withholding is when a racist institution refuses to have a conversation about an issue, like when the Blackstone families were promised $5 million for doors and walls by Laura Perel, but have been getting brushed off by Dr. Caselius. Or when teachers had their warnings trivialized in the reopening process and are still figuring out the impossibility of teaching in person and online at the same time. Then there was the academic department that was gutted of nine people. The pandemic response has focused on food distribution and school resource officer reports instead of a plan for quality online and in-person learning, diverting away from academics. We need racial and ethnic disaggregated data on students in person versus remote. Then there is flat out denial, such as the land grab of the McCormick Green Space where the school committee outlined a process then did not follow it. Or this budget process where Nate Cooter tells parents the budgets are not losing core programming and staff, but families know they are losing funding and students through the BPS managed student assignment process year after year. When we ask for more information, we're told to check the website. However, the Explore budget tool has not been updated with FY22 numbers. The, FY, the weighted student funding formula, which determines school budgets, has not had a comprehensive equity analysis either. The lack of transparency is an indicator of a lack of accountability. And later in the evening, a parent talks about her experience enrolling her K-1 student for school in September. A few weeks ago, I started the K-1 registration process for our second child. During this process, I was asked multiple times if my presence was, if my preference was hybrid or remote. When I repeatedly responded that I thought that was only for the current school year, the register replied, well, we are all remote now and working from home, so who's to say we will be back at all? This interaction was shocking and deeply upsetting, but I assumed it must be a mistake. Unfortunately, I then learned that approximately 60% of BPS kindergarten parents were asked their preference between hybrid or remote for the upcoming fall term for those who have already registered. Dr. Casilius has previously stated that the current focus is getting students back to school this year, then they would focus on summer school, and then they would start thinking about the fall. That is a scary prospect. It will soon be spring and there is no plan for the next school year. These children can't wait until the 11th hour again and potentially set back for the third school year in a row. We live in the education capital of our country. I am pleading with you to ask for assistance. Your constituents want to help. Please utilize your parents, teachers, and the community to form a subcommittee and start planning for the fall now. Jill, she's right. We're not hearing anything about a plan for next school year. Uh, this is really scary. Uh, in fact, why isn't school committee asking about any of this, right? Uh, other schools um, and other school districts have put together and they've had committees working you know, since a, a, for a number of months about reopening and what does September look like? But let's be really clear. They, we have to answer the question, will our students be back to five days of learning in September? We need an answer to that question. And if so, how will students and staff members be safe for five days a week of learning in September? And if not, we need to be clear with families now that that won't be happening in BPS. And clearly the district ought to apply for a waiver with the state if that's not gonna be happening. But families need to know now, because we all need to know how we can get back to work and, and our daily lives, because our students need to be back in school in person. 
Then Jill, foreshadowing the conversation that will happen later in this podcast around literacy, there was a comment made from a parent about excellence for all. And you know, this is what you remember. We've been talking about excellence for all for a while. This is essentially came up in the last episode of last night at school committee. Excellence for all is a program that is working to replace advanced work class. According to an article on WBUR.com in 2016, BPS expanded AWC curriculum to fourth grade students in 13 schools with plans to expand the curriculum to every school in the district within three to five years. How did that work out? Did it close the achievement gap? The article goes on to state that the excellence for all idea was sparked three years earlier, which would bring us back to 2013 that this idea first gained traction. What exactly have you guys been doing? Every student should have access to the AWC curriculum by now. AWC classrooms, however, should stay. If a class must slow down for students not ready for the curriculum, the whole class suffers. You are creating a race to the middle. An AWC class should, be all, should all be on the same page, but at least with excellence for all, the whole district has the same book. Every student is capable of advanced work, but students reach potential at different rates. As you track performance with the dashboard uh, programming that you mentioned, how you track students across the district, you will see where students are falling behind in the curriculum. You can use this data to increase resources and opportunities to get everyone up to speed where it is needed. Thank you. Here, we have a concerned parent effectively saying, this is the way the district should operate. You should have a program that works. And in fact, if something works, you should do it in every classroom across our city. Why aren't you doubling down on that? If you have the data, why aren't you using it? Right. So then we moved into presentations. There were two presentations last night. The first presentation of the evening was about literacy. Ross, why did it seem like a presentation about literacy turned into a conversation about autonomous schools? Right, Jill, I mean, this is not a new presentation. In fact, we've seen this presentation three or four times. Um, most recently, one, almost probably one year ago when we covered this presentation on last night's school committee. Right. The strategy is not new. The question is that if, if it works, why hasn't it been rolled out? And by the way, why are, you know, as we're in a pandemic, um, why didn't we mention anything about teaching kids during a pandemic early literacy? Right. Um, how are we teaching early literacy to our youngest learners? Um, how are we measuring it? It is very difficult to teach reading and writing in a virtual environment. And essentially the answer from the literacy team was the problem is autonomous schools. Really? That's our problem? Autonomous schools? We're gonna have the success, the data is going our way, the trends are all look good, we're implementing with fidelity. And then you say, we'll share it with the schools that want it. Yes. We'll repeat that, the schools that want it. Yep. And I, 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 Jerry's shaking her head with me. And how long as a district can we tolerate um, the ability of schools to turn down work that we're demonstrating serves our kids? So, so Jill, th this really, I, I'm not sure about this, this question from, from Dean Coleman, he's talking about implementation. I think he's, he's he, I'm sorry, he's talking about how do we expand this program. I think he's like three steps ahead of where we should be. First, how do we implement the program we've been talking about for a number of years? And why are we not implementing the program? You know, how do we then measure the impact of the program? And then how do we roll it out across the district? But before we get there, why isn't the school committee asking, where's the budget? Right, like we're in a budget season. Where's the budget for this program and implementing this program? What is our strategy for implementing it? Where's the professional development hours, right? So how many, how much time are we gonna dedicate 
going forward for teachers to learn how to teach these new strategies and this new curriculum? No one discussed this at all. No one asked this question. Um, the results to date. So what are the results to date? How many students have used this? How many teachers have used this program? How have students benefited from this program? What let's disaggregate the data to show what students are benefiting, what students may not be benefiting from it. No data on that. And then let's get to there are many non-autonomous schools in the district. How is it going with the non-autonomous schools in the district so that we can have the conversation about the entire district adopting the program? Right. Says so Ross, it won't autonomous schools adopt the program if it works? Of course, Jill. I mean, in fact, a good example of this is NACI accreditation, for example. So Jason Saxon, his team um, implemented NACI accreditation for our um, K0, K1, K2 classrooms. They had a really, really strong structure. They had good coaching strategies. And essentially, autonomous schools said, we really want to do that. And they opted in, they bought those services, and they implemented. So when a program offered by central office is really good, autonomous schools say, we want to do that. And they will opt in. Yeah, it feels it's a little worrisome here that there's a bait and switch going on where, you know, we have no idea what it felt like to be a new student in our school system or a student who is, you know, progressing along um, in terms of literacy and is having to do that this year over Zoom the entire year. So we have no idea what, what the results of that have been, but there was plenty of distraction around a conversation about autonomous schools that, I mean, I don't know, it just, it had nothing to do with the point of the presentation. Jill, this is, this is, school committee members are, are, are just missed a huge opportunity yeah. to talk about what's important. We're in a pandemic. What did kids learn this year? How did they learn it? Uh, why aren't school committee members asking about this? What does autonomy have to do with anything right now? Right. Jill, let me just be clear. Like, I think this is so important. If it works, implement it. If excellence for all works, implement it. If mass core works, implement it. If taking attendance is important, then do it. Stop talking about some schools will do this and some schools won't do it. You're a district. Do what you think works and then report back the results. Instead of making excuses or having conversation about how autonomy is some impediment to the district doing their job. Right. So Joe, that was our literacy report. I would hope that, you know, in the coming meetings, we have members ask the harder questions about implementation and about data and how our most vulnerable students are doing in our district. Absolutely. Lastly, there was a school committee presentation on the new goals and guidelines that they submitted a couple of meetings ago. Here's our summary on this. They read the same thing that they've read in the last two meetings about why school committee has created new goals and guidelines or guardrails in addition to the goals that they've already approved for the superintendent and for the district for this year. They did not add any real numbers around what is true now, baseline numbers, and what they want to achieve. They blame the pandemic for not having any of those numbers for either the baseline or the goal metrics, but then they concluded by saying that they will have real numbers for the next meeting. And we're, quite honestly, we're looking forward to seeing those. Right, Jill, so, so, the, so what we heard was the, the engagement meetings that the committee had 
were not very well attended, except for the student session, which they said was very well attended. Mm -hmm. um, they received feedback. They recognized they should have done a much better job engaging the community, and they probably should have gone to existing committees like the Special Education Parent Advisory Group and the Citywide Parent Council and existing committees and asked for their input, but they didn't do that this time, and it doesn't sound like they're going to do it. They did yeah. these engagements without any real members, so nobody really knows, no, like nobody could weigh in on what they think the goals should be or should be quantified. And then the school committee said, but you know, we missed all those opportunities, but we're gonna roll this out and we're gonna change fundamentally how school committee operates after we do it. Jill, I gotta say, you know, we heard from 62 people at public comment express their distrust of the committee and the superintendent's team. The disconnection from the reality of what's happening day to day and what the committee is talking about is outstanding. Um, it's crushing. Gotta, it's crushing, you, Ross. I mean, fifty-four thousand kids' lives are we, at stake. We 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 have to bring the committee has to get much closer, much more proximate to what people are experiencing on a day-to-day -day basis, um, in order to gain back the trust of the community. So, on that note, here are some questions that we wish we had heard from school committee members last night. Do teachers have what they need to teach simultaneously with all K-0 through third graders returning to school on Monday? What will transportation look like Monday? And what do parents know what their bus route is and can they expect buses to, to, to come on time? How will COVID-19 surveillance testing be communicated to families, especially those families who are starting on Monday? It's exam school admissions time. How many students were in the pool for, of applicants for the exam schools? And what were the results of the new policy that was implemented this year? And finally, there are so many questions that we wish they had asked about summer and back to school this fall. So how do we engage? How do we help? Here are some ideas. It's budget season. Most importantly, attend an upcoming budget hearing. Ask questions, share your thoughts. Boston's city council also, they approved the school department's budget. It's the biggest part of the city budget. Make sure that they know what you think about the budget and where you have questions or would like to see changes. Attend an upcoming exam school admissions task force meeting. Um, we will post the meeting schedule in our blog. And those will all be on Zoom, so easy to attend. And if you want to learn more about COVID-19 surveillance testing in schools, you can visit www.covidedtesting.com, covidedtesting.com. Thank you for listening to Last Night at School Committee. We hope that you enjoyed today's podcast. And if you did, please rate, review, like, and share it with your fellow friends, parents, and residents of Boston. We all have a stake in the future success of Boston students. Have a great day.